Want to exhibit your work? BFF doesn't exist without artists. BFF will help you get in contact with neighborhood businesses and spaces and guide you through any other help you need. Start the conversation at BFFOmaha.org. BFF is dedicated to supporting the region's emerging and established artists by creating opportunity, exposure, and experiences that help them move forward while enriching the cultural competency of the greater Omaha area. BFF to the arts, BFF to the community, BFF. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock. Today on the show, I've got Bofield Berry, who's the playwright of the new play called Red Summer, which just opened at the Blue Barn Theater this last weekend. Um, it was in commemoration of the centenary of the Omaha race riots of 1919. And Blue Barn commissioned this play specifically uh, to focus and make sure that we remember and acknowledge and confront the lynching of William Brown, who was accused of a crime he couldn't physically have committed and was tortured and lynched in downtown Omaha 100 years ago, 1919. So Bofield wrote this incredibly powerful play that I was lucky enough to be able to see and get a chance to talk to her about. Uh, it's one of those plays that I think is, it reminds you of just the power that art can have in making you confront real topics. I mean, it, it's so easy to think of all art as entertainment or that it's not really for confronting the real things or there's always that artifice so there's something comforting about it. But what Bofield was able to do here I think is something I mean, she has elements. There, There's levity. There's light. There's humanity. It's not all darkness. But to get us to really confront the reality of the situation, of powerlessness, and of the fact that sometimes there is just an irrationality to hate, that hate itself can be irrational and powerful, is sort of this just abyss that sometimes you you need to be prompted to stare into and acknowledge. And it was one of these things where I sat right behind her on opening night and I felt like I should go up and talk to her afterward. But at the same time, by the time this play ended, it packed such a punch that I just needed to kind of be alone with my thoughts to compartmentalize and to think and to let it soak in and to regain some sense of composure. And I mean, to, to do that, I drove home through downtown Omaha where all of this was happening and I couldn't see downtown Omaha without thinking of it. And I... I don't say this to scare you away from going. I say it to encourage you. I think as people of Omaha, if you're listening to this and you live in Omaha, I think it's important we acknowledge our history, the ugly along with the good. And Bofield is adding an, a level of humanity that often is not told when this story is taught to us. And I think that that's incredibly important, and I'm incredibly impressed with it. And I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to talk with her today. So... I urge you over the next month to go see Red Summer down at the Blue Barn. Blue Barn's a great local theater. It's a fantastic play with fantastic performances, an amazing script, and an amazing, powerful punch that it's able to pack. It's an amazing play. Seriously, go see it. In the meantime, though, please enjoy my conversation with playwright Bofield Berry. This is a little Western, though, right? No, this is He's a Priest. Yes. And he yes. becomes obsessed with global warming. Slow. Yep, and then that guy's that guy killed himself. Yep, yep, and then okay. his wife had asked him to basically so, do some therapy sessions of some sort. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. It's I I thought it was a really good movie, really powerful mm-hmm. movie. But yeah, you get to that ending and you're like, I think I get it, but I don't know if I wanted it to end that way. With the making out. Yeah. I didn't get it. 
<laughs> I so, mean, I felt like I got it, but yeah, I didn't. It was more powerful before the ending. The yes. ending didn't do anything for me. Right. Well, it's almost like it trying to be so ambiguous with the ending kind of took away from the power of how simple it was up to that point. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'd say First Reformed, actually, there's maybe some similarity because that's a movie that you just, it's hard to get it out of your head after you watch it in some ways where it's like you're just looking into that abyss of like hopelessness and powerlessness. Yeah. And I'd say your play has some degree of that too. Oh, we're on air. We're doing this. We are on air now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing this. Okay. Um, you think so? I mean, you. I don't know that you were emphasizing it, but it's hard not to confront the history and mm-hmm. what actually happened and not be overwhelmed with that. Right, right, right. Well, I think it's... I think something that I found was really true in that Thursday audience that you were in and versus we had a um, preview night audience for black leaders in Omaha that the audience reaction when it's a mostly black audience versus when it's a mostly white audience was very different and it was palpable. Even the actors had mentioned it. Um, the black audience was very reactive and vocal to it. And the white audience seemed to be a little bit more of an internal Mm -hmm. reaction. You know, I think that, it, it is true, and I did write it in this way because I knew very well that it would affect different audiences differently. Um, but I didn't expect that to be something that everyone felt. Um, I mean, the racial component specifically? Uh, uh, like of the audience reaction? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had said, I even said in one of our talkbacks, I was like, like, I wrote this show for the Omaha community at large Mm -hmm. and um, the black audience will take it differently from a white audience where those variables land. I can't say, but I could just, I just know like seeing something like people in, in your audience weren't as surprised about Virginia's reactions, you know, and the way that she was in the world. And I just found that really interesting. I mean, is that, do you think that's a cynicism or what do you attribute that to? Um, no, I don't think it's a cynicism. I think it's like, uh, for me, I think it's a reflection of just our truths. Like, I don't feel like I really held a lot back in writing the show. You know, I want to confront things head on. And I took it from the black migrant perspective for a reason because we're so used to hearing about these stories from the top down. Right. Right. So we know about, well, there was the, the guys who, who run the town and run the newspaper and all the politics of it. And then this guy that gets lynched is just a part of their story. Right. He's just, um, a a fodder in this big machine. And so when you start at the very bottom you have to confront the truce because it doesn't really for these people in this world, all of those big machine things don't really matter mm-hmm. until it affects them directly. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, you were playing with the politics of that in a lot of ways too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, cause they talk about, you know, I can only do what I can do. And there's sort of that element of what power do you actually have? What power don't you have? And even just the, even within the relationships. I mean, it seems like that's all over this play. Yes. But from, a bottom-up perspective, right. right? So, like, 
from the people who really have no power. Right. How all of these powerful decisions and powerful men um, really have control of their fate. Right. And then, I mean, that compiled with the power of just irrational hate, I think, is part of that abyss where it's just like, I mean, even though it's not the yeah. emphasis, it's hard not to just let that soak into you and just like I after the play at first I wanted to go, you know, talk to you after it. But I just needed to sort of like regain my composure and let it all soak in before I even could do anything. <laughs> my husband said the same thing. He said after the show, he came to one of the preview nights and someone came up to him and said, so what did you think about the show? And he was like, it doesn't fucking matter what I think about the show. Everybody needs to go home and just think that's exactly (laughs) yeah well then i said to drive home i had to drive through downtown omaha and it's just like Mm -hmm. it's everywhere and Mm -hmm. i just you know i mean not that i was trying to get it out of my head necessarily but it's like that almost was its own reflective experience and journey that i went through just you know thinking about it all and i don't know i mean i don't know that like i said i don't know that you were trying to make me fall into this abyss or anything but (laughs) i feel like to some extent it's just it's hard to ignore it no okay so absolutely not as a matter of fact, part of that whole process was creating these lives on stage that are very full. Like mm-hmm. we see people laughing and, and being in love and partying and having a good time. And it is to, it's really to show that um, this tragedy, that we don't live in this tragedy. We visited this tragedy. They're just trying to live their whole full lives. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what I was getting at about how different audiences react differently because um, for many of the black audiences, that joy of that, they're grateful that thank you for just showing more of his life than just, you know, that horrible picture that we know. Right. And for white audiences, of course this comes with a side of the ever present white guilt. I'm trying not to layer that onto you. Right. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't know how much of that played into my reaction or not, but I think to some extent just humanizing people mm-hmm. realistically or in a way that, you know, you emotionally connect with them makes the tragedy a lot more palpable. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think about it in terms of, like, when we're thinking in modern terms. So Will Brown, we've known that story. or A lot of people don't know that story, but a lot of us do. We've known that name for a long time. We know this horrific thing happened to him. But we don't know much else about his life, or I don't know how much people have cared to dig into what more is behind his life. And I think about that in terms of in 2019, who is that for us? You know, um, is Will Brown, would Will Brown be a hashtag? You know, people that are just kind of um, thrown into the spotlight because of the horrific ways that they've met their fate. And it's, and usually in these cases, racially based in the media. Um, how much more, and then, you know, people form their narratives about those people based on their own bias. Mm -hmm. It's automatic, you know? Um, Well, if they had complied, if they had done this, if they had done that, things could be different. And so I want to remove that barrier that this is tragic because it happened a hundred years ago and it shouldn't have happened when there are cases that are happening like that right now that shouldn't happen. And they do. And we kind of remove ourselves from those people. Um, But they have just as full lives as any of us. What's it called? It's called Sonder. You know, when Sonder is the recognition that the person, the stranger sitting across from you has just as full of a life as you do yourself. Well, I think that's partially what makes it so scary in the play to some extent. Because like the basic element of empathy is 
I assume there's some degree of like, you know, rational thought or reason among people in general that humans have that. But to do what they did to him, I don't know how you find rational elements to that. I don't know how you find reason in that. And just that that's coming from the position of power, which has the least amount of, you know, significant thought to it or logic you can follow Mm -hmm. is terrifying. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, surely you're trying to push that in there as well. Right. I mean, that that drives some of what's going on. Well, the scariest thing is that I don't feel like I had to push anything, you know, just going from the narratives of the research that I did was horrific enough. And I researched for this play for, I mean, months. And I was I found myself in really dark places when I did it because I was asking myself those exact questions. I was wondering, like, okay, well this these horrific things because when people think about lynching you kind of probably just think about like a hanging of some sort but something I really learned was that there is a major difference between hanging as a form of punishment for a crime committed versus the pure spectacle and torture of a lynching when I went back and read accounts of what mobs of people did to other people in lynchings it was it was absolutely i mean i don't have words for it it was inhumane right and it really sat with me that they didn't see will or these other victims as people you you i i don't understand how you can see someone as a human person and then commit these atrocities to their body in front of you in front of children while people gather around so when I go back to that narrative and I tried to just stay as true to that because it really was terrorism for a lot of people and in the beginning of the show we discussed how people were leaving the south in droves to come up north and so much of it was based on lynchings that they saw or family members lost or fighting for their own lives so it's not hard to dig into the horror of that jordan peele is doing a new series that's going to be a jim crow horror series i've heard of this yet lovecraft country i'm like so about this (laughs) because that's i was explaining to my director and my um dramaturg i was like this is a horror tale like that is what this is you know and we pulled out of that a little bit through the crafting of the show but it absolutely started out as a horror play and i mean i assume it was a conscious decision not to have the people doing the lynching as characters or not to include a lot of the people in power right yeah absolutely i mean do you think that to some extent that's because it's difficult to humanize those people i mean would they just be sort of like almost cartoonishly evil villains if they were a part of it no i feel like um it's been their narrative for long enough okay so it's just that okay so shifting the focus was the whole idea there yeah okay yeah. But I mean, like, as the playwright, though, to some extent, are you thinking about them as characters? Is that something that comes into it? Uh, like what their motivations are trying to think of them as humans? Even? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, I find that really hard to humanize people in the mob in the context of this story. You know, they are humans and they're really flawed humans and... 
it's just not their story. So I just didn't fuck with them really. Can okay. I curse? Yeah, totally. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> well, okay. So maybe we could take a step back and we'll sort of make our way over to this. I mean, I'm curious. So the arc of your story in general, mm-hmm. are you from Omaha originally? I am. Okay. So you've, do you have family history throughout Omaha? Yes. I've got a really deep family history in North Omaha specifically. And, um, I come from a long line of people who have been very civically engaged in their communities. And yeah, and now I'm one of them. (laughs) So was that something like as you're a kid, uh, as a kid, were you politically aware and active? And I mean, was that something that was on your radar then from a young age? I was raised with my mother and my great grandfather. My great grandfather was from the South, um, Gwinnett County, Georgia, born in 1922. So he had a very different life experience than we do now. And I grew up with all of his stories and all of those tales. And it was nothing for us to be driving up 24th Street and my grandfather to say, well, this is where the riots were. This is where Vivian Strong was killed. They set this whole area over here on on fire, talking about the riots from the 1960s, which my family had been involved in. My grandmother was a leader in in North Omaha, um, specifically with children, and then she was also a panther for a while. So yeah, I grew up with this with this sense of living in many different Omahas. Okay. You know? like, um, so what were the different Omahas to you? Well, the different Omahas being the people who, like kids like me, who grew up knowing all of these horrific stories, mm-hmm. and then kids who grew up west of downtown or North Omaha who did not grow up with those stories and didn't have to hear about that side of things in Omaha. Right. People surprised to know, wow, something like this really happened here. Right. There's that sense of surprise. Mayor Stothert said it on the courthouse stairs at the memorial this past weekend. She said, it's hard to believe that this happened in Omaha. And I was like, "Mm, no, (laughs) that's maybe your opinion that it's hard to believe, but that's your Omaha. Right. I mean, do you find uh, an opinion like that insulting on some level? I find it one-sided right I find it short-sighted okay I mean and so you were you able to look at this I mean was it overwhelming for you as a kid or were you able to have sort of this idea like maybe there's something that can be done maybe there's some focus through political action that can change things not as a kid as a kid it you know it was just normal Mm -hmm. because it wasn't like we weren't always we weren't mired in dark Omaha history, <laughs> you know. Like we also lived down there and played down there, and and that was just part of everything. Um, but as I grew up, you know, as any kid, but especially a biracial kid, maybe um, you grow up and you have identity crises, and you try to fit in with the the people that you're around and. And then I didn't really get like politically vocal about things again until my late 20s when I really started noticing. What was that? What happened then? Um, I had my first baby and it was within that pregnancy. My father is a white Trump supporter. Interesting. Has he seen the play? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. We don't speak. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> We don't speak. We didn't grow. I didn't grow up with him. So it wasn't, you know, okay. it's not a major loss. But, um, but, um, when, as I was having my first baby, I just really, something inside me shifted and I had to have a, a sense of grounding and a sense of knowing who I am. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was also around Michael Brown and Ferguson. Okay. 
And so as I start seeing what's happening and I just open my eyes, I'm just not playing cute little girl anymore. And I just kind of grew up. And that was that informed me of how I want to work in the world and and how I want my work to inform the world. Was that part of just the sort of fear of the world that your child was coming into? Hmm. My I knew my child would be white passing and my husband is white. So it wasn't so much about fear for his life, but my entire family is black and it's hard for me, even in the research of this play and watching those narratives play out on TV and then really incenses me is like comment sections on the, on news channels. Right. Um, just seeing how far we haven't come and I had to pick a side. Okay. So my side could my side could either be la di da, mind my business, do whatever, or la di da, fuck you. I I don't I don't allow racism in my spaces. Right. So that's what I chose. And so it needed to be an active choice. That- it needed to be an active choice, yeah, because because I've always been like a people person. I've always been very like accommodating. My father would say things that upset me or insulted me but I would just be like well that's your opinion and now that is just no longer good enough <laughs> <laughs> I mean comment sections are always horrible like they're always the worst things in the whole world I mean mm-hmm. so do you find that that I don't know some people would say that that's not the thing to judge the rest of society on but it is a part of it still and it is more prevalent as the internet grows yeah I mean yes that is where you judge society now and I've been saying this through all of my press for the show. It's like, no, we don't have lynch mobs in the street anymore. But that mentality goes somewhere. You can go to any comment section underneath something about a black person or an immigrant person. And you can see who would be in their lynch mob. Because just because we've passed laws and we've passed legislation doesn't mean mob mentality, racist mob mentality is gone anywhere. Right. You just can't you know, have a picnic around it anymore. Right. My dad, for some reason, has dedicated all of his free time right now to fighting unreasonable people on Facebook comment sections. And I keep trying to tell him, like, this is, I don't know what you think you're going to accomplish here. And he's like, I think they're no. listening. I think they're going to get it. Like, why? I, I have been there. I have done that so many times. And I have said, like, if you see me in the comment section fighting hard, I'm probably a little depressed that day. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. So, I, I mean... So you are balancing this plus, I mean, obviously the impulse to make art. So Mm -hmm. where did that start? Well, I've been doing theater since I was a teenager and I've been a writer since even before that as a kid. That's always what I wanted to do. Um, So it was natural. It's a way for me to be able to use my voice and make change in the world without fighting with people on Facebook. Right. Right. That is like, that is the thing. It's like, I I realized that having mm, lectures at people or calling them assholes or whatever, that does not work. What I do think can get through to people to just create a foundation of empathy or like just a little crack in their wall is to create art that really just presents a truth and then have them figure it out for themselves. You know, everybody who left the theater that night and the night since 
they take something of their own home with them. I can't dictate what that is. It's mm-hmm. whatever they need from that show. And so for me, that's the way I can use my voice to to open us up to these deeper conversations. Was that, I mean, when did that manifest as the goal for telling stories, though? I mean, because that's a very nuanced way of looking at it. <laughs> so surely not when you're like 10, you know? No, 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 no. Um, my first play that was produced was called Psycho Ex-Girlfriend before Crazy Ex-Girlfriend yeah, came you out. Should, uh, should I have, know. should be getting some royalties for that. I was like, oh, this bitch. <laughs> Um, and I think that was like, that was the first time that I used that play to really very cathartically to like unleash some, some dating demons that I had. (laughs) The tagline was psychos aren't dated, they're created. (laughs) And, um, so I used, so I think that's where kind of the reflection started. It's not just a reflection on the world around us. It's also a reflection of myself as a writer and then a reflection of the audience and what they take away from it. So it's been a growing process, too. So, I mean, when when you, when you was that play? Like, how many years ago would that have been? Oh, I think eight. Eight years ago? Okay. Mm-hmm. So was that something that, as you were crafting it, you started to think about it, what impact it would have? Or is that something that comes from just sitting in audiences? Sitting in the audience. Experiencing what that's like. You know, it's. I think it's twofold. Because when you're writing it, you know, especially a revenge play like that, like you're writing it and you're like, oh, I know he's going to see this. Let me say it right here in front of everybody. <laughs> and then, you know, you kind of grow out of that maybe sometimes. But then um, seeing it in an audience and like seeing reactions to it, and especially seeing it next to your mom, then you really get what it's how it's working in the world. Right. And then afterwards, when you start getting feedback from people, you know, oh, my God. I know a guy just like that. Thank you so much. Those those are when I really start to, okay, this is resonating. Mm-hmm. So when, I mean, why plays specifically is sort of, because you've also done a book, right? Mm-hmm. And then did I see screenwriter on something? Yes. Okay, yeah. so you, you're yeah. kind of all over the place, but yeah. are you you're primarily doing plays right now anyway? Theater is my first and greatest love. Okay, did you I, do plays in high school? Um, I was homeschooled in high school, but oh, okay. I was part of a theater collective. So we did do a lot of plays in high school. We were the nerds. Um, I wrote, directed, acted, stage managed, all of that stuff. So you, you had the bug and you were passionate about it enough to do all that work. Yeah. Where does that yeah. come from? I don't know. And I'm so lazy now. <laughs> like my dramaturg is like, a, you know, your dramaturg helps you suss out the script and get it historically accurate. And she's like, you're being lazy here. Anytime I, I write a montage inside of a script, when I, it's like, I don't know what else they do. So make them do a montage to music. That'd be great. But the montages are great. I love so, a montage. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But yes, this one, actually, the montage I had got pulled out. And she's like, I've seen this in three of your scripts. And I was like, I don't know what else to put there. So they just, I don't know, put on a pop song, make them do something. And <laughs> she's like, cut that. <laughs> Yeah. But so, okay. I mean, you knew what it meant to be like you to have to direct it, to have to do those jobs. And so like, mm-hmm. were, you, were you someone who was just obsessively reading about theater and trying to like, absorb all of that mm-hmm. in the process? Okay. Yeah. As a kid, um, I was a leader. I was a mean girl. I loved power. <laughs> I told my husband today, I was like, you see, I get, I kind of get why people get crazy with power. Cause you can't give me any real power. Cause you know, I will abuse it. 
You're at least introspective about the power, though. You know? Yes, I'm very introspective. I'm going to use it right, but I'll use it to my benefit anyway. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so in high school and, like, high school age, um, we tried a little bit of everything, but I really saw... Like my, I just fell into the love of writing, of crafting the stories that everybody else could take to stage. I would act, I just acted recently in a show, but it's not my favorite thing. It gives me too much nervy nerves. Mm -hmm. Directing isn't, I don't feel like I have the eye for direction. I feel like there's so many amazing directors out there that I just want to work with them. I don't need to be them. So that you're not so power hungry then if you're able to (laughs) understand that. Because most people are like, yeah, I might not do as good of a job, but I want the job anyway. Yeah, no, no. You're so then. Thank you. I'll take that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like, so what were some of the plays that were igniting that fire for you? Um, we wrote a play in high school and my old buddy Chip and I wrote a play called Blind Date. Okay. And it was a, a, a play about um, this guy is on speed dating rounds. And so these girls that come in, there's like just broke up with boyfriend girl. None of them have names. Just broke up with boyfriend girl and um, wants to be a comedian girl and I can't even remember, but he, he goes through like all these 12 dates and then in the end he falls in love with the waitress. Like that play was supposed to be a 25 minute one act. It was an hour and a half long. <laughs> we took up the entire night and um, it was that because the audience reaction, I mean, we're talking parents and grandparents, of course, but they were like off their seats laughing and I was like, yeah, well, that's my power. Yes. Yeah. The power to make thing. them react. Right. Yeah. Yes. That, well, that's something I've noticed. I mean, I was even thinking about it as I was sitting down in the play on Thursday, which is just like listening to the noises the audience makes. Sometimes you want to hear them. Sometimes you don't. And it's like <laughs> that combination is fascinating. Like I've made some movies and I'm just sitting in the audience listening to that. It's like I'm obsessed with hearing what the audience is doing way more than I'm watching the movie. Yeah. Uh, when we play, it's a little different because you know, there's stuff actually happening in front of you. Yeah. Yes. That's real. That's live. Yeah. Um, but okay. So, I mean, you figured out early on you wanted to do playwriting then. And mm-hmm. so did you want to study that like formally? Um, I did a few playwriting classes. I've never been a great student. Okay. I just get, I'm like, I like it. And then I'm just over it. <laughs> I need to like move on. Like you get the idea. And you're like, yeah, okay. I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I don't like to follow the rules Mm -hmm. you know I don't like to be told it must happen this way or this way or this way or this way and I can study kind of all of that on my own I say that however my friend one of my closest friends is a playwright at Yale right now and I'm like send me all of your lessons (laughs) well because you you want to learn from it just not in the structure I want to learn from it I don't want to pay for it well yeah fair fair enough yeah (laughs) yeah like give me give me the lessons without you know that right but so, I mean, like at some point, though, you're thinking, if this is going to be a job, I've got to figure out how to actually get plays put on in a way where it's sort of, there's the commercial element to it, right? I mean, it's like, hopefully making some money, or at least there's some money going into the productions, not just all thrown together. I think that I am really excellent at that, because I cannot stand shitty art. And it annoys me, this is just true, It is just, and it's always been true. I think about my audience as, who do I want to reach? I want to reach people who don't see theater all the time. I want to reach people who are like, why would I go to a play? 
I want to reach people who are like, um, I haven't been to the theater since high school productions. And then I want to get them a ticket. I want to get their butts in those seats. And then I want to pull them in and make them want to watch that play and the next one after it. People like my husband, who I have been very judicious with what I bring him to. I have to bring him to something good because if I bring him to something bad, I'll lose him forever. Like, you know, socially. <laughs> um, He's not just going to walk out because yeah, I'm playing with okay. Leave me with the kids and the mortgage. Oh, my God. Um, so for me, I'm always thinking about that. I think about entertainment level, you know, like I don't want to write. I don't want people to come in and see a boring play. I don't want people to come in and see some weird shit that does that is just like weird that they expect about theater, right. you know, and like, God bless the people who are doing that, but they're doing that for a very limited audience. That's not the audience I'm writing for. I want to write for the audience at large for the blue collar audience who does not give a shit about Bertolt Brecht and right. they just want to come and be entertained and get their money's worth. This is why you're not a good theater student in classes. I assume. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> like I don't want to talk about Tennessee Williams. Yeah, like, do we got to wait for Godot again? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm through waiting for his ass. <laughs> so, I mean, that seems especially hard with theater of all mediums because mm-hmm. people are so sure that the plays are boring mm-hmm. if they're not already into it. Yep. So how do you set out to do that? Because that's a very ambitious goal. Surely you're aware that's especially ambitious. Um, I just, I like to do things like, so I like to do pop-up theater. So I do like, we just did this thing last summer called Mom's Night Out. And it was moms who can't do a full run of a show because that's like three months of your life anymore. Um, so they come in, we rehearsed for a few times. We just do funny skits and we sold out the house and then we were done with it. And then by the time everybody's talking about about it, we're, we're out of there. We're done. Um, I did a fundraiser show called The Flora and the Fauna. And I pulled in. It was a play for two actors, and I was producing that. And I pulled in 18 different actors to play all the different scenes. I'm like, okay, if we pull in 18 different actors, that's 18 different fan bases to bring people in from. You know, that's mm-hmm. how you kind of like start to grow an audience. And then every time I do something, I make sure it's not boring, and I make sure it's quality, and then I promote the fuck out of it. But you, and you're good at that. You know how to do that. Right? Yeah, so, I was in PR and like, um, um, marketing and branding for years. Okay. So. So what? I mean, what? I mean, bef- were you always sort of talented at that at getting people to actually show up, or was that something you had to figure out no, the way? No, I've always been great at that. <laughs> okay. Even my cast right now, they like my cast showed up and they were like. We were just told to be here. Bo told us to come. We didn't even know we were auditioning for a thing. And now we're in this cast. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. I'm sorry. I didn't tell you. But thanks for being here. What do you attribute that to? How do you know how to rally people like that? My charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent. Okay, yeah. You got it all at <laughs> the list. Charisma is interesting to me. How do, you, how do you get good at being charismatic? You don't. I think you got it or you don't. Okay. And I think people who don't got it, you don't have to have it. You just got to find a friend who does. Fair enough. And you, but you, I mean, it's much easier for you to have that. Like, cause you, then you can do the plays and you can market them and you can convince people. It's more work for you, but you also don't have to rely on people. I hate relying on people so much. Have you had problems re- relying on people? For yes. I have art? found people are never, not never, and sorry, nobody be offended. But I have found like 
people not willing to work as hard as I am to get the result that I want to get to. Right. Like I used to run a burlesque troupe many moons ago and I wanted to do crazy things like rehearse. And my girls were like, nobody's really going to care. We're going to be drunk. They're going to be drunk. We're going to be hot. And then let's just, and then we're going to get our applause. And it would like, I would get like a, a tick in my face because it's like, that's not how it fucking works. <laughs> so there's definitely, so it's a few years ago, my friends told me that I wasn't laid back and I was like completely shocked. They were like, Bo, you're not like laid back at all. And I was like, excuse me? Like I go with the flow. They're like, no, you make the game plan and then you force us to do what you want. Right. And then you think you're going with the flow. And I'm like, oh my God. That is a reckoning, a reckoning that I didn't expect. Um, so I think it's charisma with uh, like a mix of just being a type A psycho. And that's how you get shit done. But you can focus too. Yeah. Enough. I mean, they get things done. Most, Enough. So I mean, surely you know so many people who are like, I want to write a play and they never really finish it. Or even if they do, they never really do anything with it. Right? It drives me crazy. Yeah. I get that too. I understand. Yeah. It's like... It's not like you can get something to exist. Making it good is really hard, but like just to get something out there or to finish something is totally doable for everybody. I don't know what it is. Like, why wouldn't you be finishing your shit? Like, why would you put so much of what you really want to do on the back burner? Like, (laughs) <laughs> I say YOLO and people make fun of me. It's, uh, they're like, you can't say YOLO anymore. Well, you can if you get it tattooed on your arm. <laughs> um, like, I just don't understand that. And like, so that that's something else that happened to me too, really, as I became a parent. People think that, you know, once you have kids, like that's when your your life is over and like you give your life to your kids. It was a complete opposite for me. My 20s were like insane. I was traveling, drinking, like what do you like I was a crazy girl and I was awesome and then we accidentally got pregnant and then something clicked inside me it was like this immediate drive all these little things I'd been doing along the way bobbing along I had like a thirst and a hunger to get shit done now and it and it really spurred on with having my first baby I think it was just because it's like if I don't hold on to this for dear life, I could lose it. Right. I think that's always the case to some extent. I mean, yeah. no matter what you're doing. But it seems like it's worked for you. You figured it out. I mean, do you think do you think it's because you were determined to make it work that you did whatever you needed to do to get there? I think it's determination and I think it's having a good marriage for me. Okay. Because my husband's my biggest supporter and he's got a great job. And so it has allowed me because I'm definitely privileged in that way that I get to stay home with my kids and work from home with my kids. And I don't have to worry about working for somebody else for eight hour, eight precious hours a day. Right. You know, so I don't take that for granted. But I think um, like having a good something I really realized was that if there's a part of your life that isn't working, none of it's going to work. So you can have all this awesome stuff going for you, but if you come home to a bad marriage, it's not going to work. If you hate the going to the job that you hate going to every single day, it's not working. Mm-hmm. And I think people just, after a while, and I've seen this in so many friends that I've grown up with, you just accept this. You've lost your dreams. You've you've thrown away all the things that you were passionate about as a kid, and you're just fine with being mediocre. Right. 
and I cannot die like that. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly you value time more than anything else, right? It's like, I want to be doing what I want to do. I want to be present in the moment if and, you, well, this and not is hate how, it. That is how I ended up on exhaustion yeah. watch <laughs> yesterday <laughs> because I'm doing way too much. But yes, yeah, um, because I just, I don't know, I feel, I feel like I just don't want to have any of those regrets of, oh, I always wanted to write a play and I never did. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel because of that drive that at a certain point it's like you are so stressed out about the art or whatever it is you're making that you're almost not enjoying it because it's like I'm so upset trying to get everything to work the way it needs to and it seems like nothing is. And I almost just like, why can't I just have fun reading a book? Why do I have to make all these things? I have said so many times, why can't I just be a fucking mathematician? Because <laughs> all the answers are right there for me and all I have to do is do some numbers. Um, but I would be horrible at that. Um, I often don't have a good time. Yeah. Doing. I, I completely relate to that. Like almost yes. all my creative things, I keep doing them. I never give up on it, but it's like when I'm in the middle of it, I don't know that I'm really having a good time. No, I would never. You think writing a play about a lynching is a fucking well, good time? Subject matter. Yeah. I mean, specifically. <laughs> but even if you're writing a comedy to some extent, it's just like, this is horrible. Yeah. It's, it, it is, it is so true. I am often not having a good time. My friend Ellen, who's a playwright also, she calls it the escalator to nowhere. She's like, you always think, which I've had, I've resisted this and then I've also allowed it. So I'm like on the fence with this philosophy. But she's like, you always think, okay, if I just get this done, then I can be happy with that. Right. And then you get that done and then you're like not fucking happy at all. And then you keep going, okay, if I just get this next goal, then I can rest, relax and be happy with that. And it never actually happens. <laughs> I find it's like I get 75% done with one thing and I'm like, okay, it didn't quite turn out how I wanted, but I know what I want to do next and that's going to be the one. And I'm <laughs> constantly somewhere in that cycle. Oh, all of the time. I live there. I totally live there. I'm like, okay, this one, I have like, you know, I've got a slush pile. I'll be like 90% done with the play, and I'm like, that's not the one. This one's going to be great. Alfred Hitchcock, the musical, like, here it comes, you know, like, yeah, it happens all the time. Well, I mean, so why do you, why are people like us drawn to continue to do these things? Then? Because we're insane. Can you not do it? No, not really. Exactly. I've tried a little bit or like I just keep myself busy enough, but that then it just leads to like I do a podcast and it's like, well, I guess I'm doing this every week now. I started a children's clothing line <laughs> <laughs> because I was just like, I'm like, I'm going to take a break from writing. Do, 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 do. Okay, let me do this. Right? You know? Yeah. 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 Uh, so I don't know what to make of that. It seems like we, we should be getting more immediate joy from it. I think there is satisfaction. It's just underneath stress of like we like the stress I guess of what it is we're doing and that's what part of the addiction is yes I think so and I think as Americans we have to work hard and find stress in something so if I'm Mm. gonna find stress in something I'd rather it be art than I don't know being on the phones at West telemarketing right still I'm terrified of boredom and it seems like you are too (gasps) okay let me tell you so like I said I, I got put, so I was at the hospital yesterday and then I put on bed rest today. It wasn't a big deal. I have been texting my friends all day. I'm going crazy. What do I do? How do you guys relax? How do you just, you just, I just, I just lay here and watch TV. Okay. Okay. Now what? Yeah, then I'm just like anxious. I'm thinking about other things. Anxious. I'm yeah. thinking about everything else. I'm like, okay, well let me, I started writing this cowgirl musical today because I was just like, 
okay, well, if I'm in bed, I can still write. It is nonstop. Are you an Aries? No, I'm a Virgo. I love Virgos. I don't know as much about it. So, like, okay, so Aries, explain that one to me. I am your typical Aries. Okay. Like, assertive, probably aggressive, probably ready to start a fight at any second, super forgiving, would give you, if you need my car right now, you can just take my car and go. (laughs) Like, all of that. And so, okay, so I think it's, are Virgos more shy, generally? Virgos, um, so my oldest, Shine, is a Virgo. He's got the same birthday as Beyonce. Oh, okay. You guys are pretty shy, but also you're, like, really open to all of the wonders of the universe, but also, like, your shirts have to be lined up just right. Okay, yeah, I relate to that. Yeah. Well, because, okay, when you're talking about your charisma and your ability to sell everything, I'm thinking, like, if I if I had that element, because I'm, like, I'm, I can open up in the right context, but it takes me to, you know, align the stars or align my shirt or whatever it needs to be, and then I can, <laughs> yes. then I can do it. <laughs> yeah. But, like, to me, like, when I, when I have a movie come out, I'm not necessarily great at, like, going around and selling it around town, you know? Yeah, you need to, you need a wingman. I guess I do. Yeah, that's what you need. Yeah, I do think that it. I and I think that's okay because you know I'm making it about me, me, me because I'm the one on the podcast. But like that show, when I look at Red Summer, I don't even see it, the show that I wrote. I see the show that was created by this village of creatives that we brought together, mm-hmm. and that that is what gives me joy in it. You know, like I can may not ever be fully happy with a script that I've written. But I'm fully happy with the production because the director, the dramaturg, the actors, the crew have all poured their themselves into it. Yeah. And so, okay, so you, you found sort of a rhythm with it, right? Because you've done several plays in the last few years, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what were some of the other big ones, the big recent ones? So In the Upper Room was a big one. That's having a production at a Lort Theater, which is one of the major theaters in America, but I can't say which one yet, um, in 2021. Nice. Yes. So that's a really big deal. And that started out here at the Great Plains Theater Conference, and then it went to the Denver Center for Performing Arts. And then we're going to do a big one-night production of it here again. And uh, I actually finished that play three years ago today. Wow. Okay. Thank you. That's time very hop. exciting. Yeah. Yes, it was. And I said, I think I just wrote my best play ever. You knew. I I knew. I knew. It was magic. That play is about family and creepy shit. I love <laughs> creepy shit on stage. That's a good elevator pitch. <laughs> family yes. and creepy shit. Family and creepy shit. Are you with me? <laughs> Give me those dollars. Um. Yeah. And. When I wrote it, this is going to sound, I'm going to sound crazy, but when I wrote it, um, I banged it out. It's a hundred page play. Banged it out in three days time. That's, did you have uh, dehydration problems then too? (laughs) It's like dry (laughs) as hell. Like just get, get this done. And I felt like my ancestors converged on that dark office that I was in and they spoke through me. And that is the way that play came out so fast and so automatically ready to go up. And it's the one that has gone the farthest. That's crazy. Does that scare you to some extent? You're like, am I going to have a three-day fit of inspiration again? (laughs) Not me. (laughs) Um, No, I welcome it. I welcome it. There were times I was scared, but... What was really freaky to me was that in that process, I didn't tell my husband what was going on. And he came down and he was like, something's off in the house. He's like, something's here. What's going on? And he's like an Iowa born Hawkeye fan. What's his sign? 
He's a Capricorn. Oh, okay. I'm, yeah. I'm in a relationship with the Capricorn, so. Yeah. yeah. I get it. All right. <laughs> yes. So he's like, he's not really one for, you know, the kooky stuff. And he was like, something's off here. And I was like, um, I'm being haunted right now. And he's like, oh, all right, cool. Just keep it cool. Just keep it cool. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. But the fact that he felt that energy um, without being, without me telling him about it, like, let me know, like, it was, this is really palpable. Are you a spiritual person? I'm, I'm dabbling. I don't know. It's been, it's been a rough road. My mom was raised in, my family was raised in the church. My mom is very spiritual. People have called my mother a prophet. Her prayers make me feel safe. They make me feel really good. But I couldn't be, when I was a teenager, I I couldn't be part of churches anymore because I, I realized how anti-LGBTQ they were. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, that well, this isn't me. I mean, my life is in theater. Like, you know. So I've struggled back and forth with that. Um, so I'm still kind of looking. But, I mean, when you say, like, your ancestors converged, is that more metaphorical or is there some degree no. of like actually belief in right. that? No, it's an actual belief. Okay. It is an actual belief. I don't know like where it lands where I could, I don't know like where it lands spiritually. Mm-hmm. I believe in, I believe in that. I believe in the spirits being around us. I believe in the things that I felt, mm-hmm. but I don't know like, you know, how to, how to put that into words really yet. But you can put it into a play, I guess, right? I can I can write the shit out of a play about it. <laughs> yes. And w- what's that one called again? In the Upper Room. Okay. And you said there's going to be an Omaha screening? Or yeah. A production? I, I, I keep talking movie terms. I, I always know, call I love it a screening. And so, yeah, I so. love it. Well, it can be a screening. I love that. Um, I didn't talk to you later, too, because I want to I wanna make this movie I've been th- think, tossing around for years, and I just haven't done it yet, because I have... Because I, uh, I've been really busy with all of this other stuff, but I have right. to get this movie done. Okay, yeah. It's like a forty-five minute thing. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. Okay. But <laughs> it's like a bur- like a burlesque revenge movie. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Sounds cool. good. It's cool. Um. So yeah, in the upper room is the name of that play. And so okay, and then so do you? Are there details about the Omaha? Oh, one day of it or? yeah, it's next year. It's next May, which is actually really soon in theater terms. And um, it's just a one night production. It's going to be at Creighton and it's through Great Plains Theater Conference and it will be open to the public. Very exciting. I will have to go to that. You have to. Yes. I'll remind you. It's okay. great. Definitely. Okay. And so uh, well, between that and Red Summer, were there any other big ones? Not really. Um in between those two shows, I like started and ended a, a theater company of my own. And then I was doing some smaller readings and stuff like that. But I was also vice president of the OEA board for three years. And I was real, I was on like five boards for those three years in between. So I was like really heavy into community. And I had kind of taken a break from writing for a little bit. That's why you're on five boards. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Sit home and watch West Wing or yeah, whatever's on at the time? Right. So, and then, okay, so Red Summer was commissioned, right? Yes. Um, so I, a friend of mine, Kelsey Watson, who's an Omaha native, he's from, he's living in LA and he was like, hey, I want to do a show about Will Brown. I was like, that's weird. I've been thinking the same thing. And it was really this anniversary was looming in the air 
as we got into 2019 and lots of creatives were talking about it. Lots of people were talking about Will Brown and it was just like all at the same time. So he came to town and he was like, so you can like start working on the script. I was like, great. And then he's like, I'm going to take it to the blue barn. I didn't have a relationship with the blue barn um, at the time, but he had had a long standing one. So we take it to Susan uh, Tober, who was the artistic director and she was surprised because I brought in a nine person cast. I was like, I'm just going to bring in. Re- this is I guess this is the kind of stuff. So she's used to somebody pitching a script by bringing the script and then talking about it or or reading it together right. or whatever. Yeah. I bring in a nine person cast, including stage directions and my mother, you know, what was your mother doing there just to react? She, she was just there proud and like looking around. <laughs> Also, it makes it more sad if they say no and your mom's right there. Extra, you know, maybe guilt. <laughs> no, to do it. Yes. Mom, cry, please. <laughs> um, so, so it's stuff like that, you know. It's stuff like going that extra little bit, that thinking outside the box, that um, that can just help you land the shit you want to land. That's mm-hmm. like a moment of bow advice really quick there. Um, so Susan listened to the script And it was a rough draft, but she listened to it and she was interested in it right away, which was cool because Susan is notoriously picky about the scripts that the Blue Barn produces. Um, So it was like two days later, she called. She's like, can you come in for a meeting? And I was like, sure. So I go in for a meeting and they want to put it on the season and not just on the season. They want to open the season with it. I was like, holy shit. Okay, let's do this. You weren't anticipating that. I wasn't. What I thought they would do is do like a one night reading of the show. Okay. And I had told them straight up, like after we got done with the reading, I said, if you want the show, it's yours. If you don't, I'm going to produce it anyway. So you have 24 hours. (laughs) Was there pressure on your end though? I mean, because obviously it's a great experience to have the Blue Barn open with it. And it's gotten a lot of publicity. I mean, so were you... As you were writing it, realizing, like, I really, if I knock this out of the park, it will be very good for me. I mean, was that, like, a, a concept for you? A lot of pressure? Yes, but I always feel that pressure anymore. Okay. Like, even if they weren't going to produce it, even and I was going to produce it myself, I would still have to make it the best it can be. Mm-hmm. But I'm so glad that they did pick it up because then I had the resources of... Barry Carmen, who is the director of outreach there, he was a great resource for pulling in all of these. We're partnering with inclusive communities and we're partnering with the NAACP and we did two symposiums and we're doing all of these um, panels after shows throughout the run, like having those resources. And then two, for me, it was great to have this done at the Blue Barn because they have, I mean, they have a huge list of regulars that come in and see all of the shows there and they have a huge um outreach for for of the community and so if I can get a show like this on a stage like that I'm going to be reaching a lot of people that I would not reach if I had just done it myself right and so I mean you're happy with how it's turned out, I assume, right? Yes. Selling out shows. I mean, like this coming weekend, are there even tickets available still? Um, Thursdays are looking good, but like every weekend is almost all gone. Yes. Yeah. I was happy dancing today when I saw, I like checked back and I was like, dune, 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 jump on it, jump on it. <laughs> Do you go see it every time? 
Hell no. No? Okay. I do go see it. I saw it opening night. Friday nights, I do talk back panels. So sometimes I go see the show and sometimes I just go up after the panel. Um, and then there's a couple of shows coming up. My husband's whole family is coming in from Iowa to come and see it. So I'll go that night and yeah. Well, and so, I mean, when you talk about you need to make sure your plays aren't boring and just like to make sure it all works and it's interesting for people who don't like theater, how do you have the sensibility to know that? Because like, as someone who likes theater a lot, it is common in a lot of theater play, or a lot of plays just to have that sort of deliberate pacing and sort of just the, the tropes of it that theater people love but other people maybe don't. How do you avoid that while still working in the medium? Um, you sell out a little bit. You just, I think about what I think is funny, what I think is uh, entertaining, and I try to lead from there. I just try to keep it interesting. Like in this play, the line, um, Omaha, Nebraska, you like it here? Eh, it's not for everybody. Right. Like that is such a, I'm that is a gift to you <laughs> from me because I want you to be, I want you to, okay. Okay, we can we can calm down now, right? Like, like they can relax and not just feel the gravity of the historical of what's to come, right? Yeah, okay, exactly, exactly. And I think too, like writing something um, historical and writing a historical drama, if you don't have humor in it, you're not going to crack people open. You know, like I don't want to look at or write tragedy without some infused comedy as well because that's really the balance that you need i feel and so i mean is that the key then it's the balance of the two different emotions of like you know something serious something meaningful but then also enough humor to keep it light enough that you know it's not just like the abyss like i was talking about before there's also laughs along the way is that is that the winning combination i think i think for this show it's the winning combination and i think for most shows it, it is and also writing and creating characters that people can relate to. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what what do you have in common with um, a black guy from 1919 who moved up here from the South? You may think nothing. But then as soon as you see him talking about gambling or drinking, okay, I understand that. Okay, I like whiskey. The second he's, you know, talking about whorehouses and dancing girls, maybe you've got something in common there. And like... <laughs> You know, whatever it is, it's like finding that um, relatability. Mm-hmm. And then two, not writing toward an agenda. There are lots of agenda plays, and, and, and by agenda, I have to be careful because I'm not saying, I don't want a white audience to assume that any black show has a black agenda to push or like any show by a gay writer has a gay agenda to push because I think that that is absolutely wrong the wrong way to look at it but by agenda I mean if you came to my show and I had put in so many anti-Trump jokes Mm -hmm. or like pierced through the hundred years and I started being very current about things that are happening today I think people then close themselves off to being open to what we're talking about on the play during the show Mm -hmm. instead of being able to like you know look at the parallels between now and then and bridge their own gaps. Right. I mean, I think to some degree there's an agenda to everything just in the sense that it's shaped by the way that the author sees the world. Sure. I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't seem like this was 
actively trying to comment so much on re- on contemporary times. Right. But I mean, also, so like when you're when you're watching with an audience, sometimes you can intend not for something to land one specific way, and then sometimes I mean, have you have you been surprised mm-hmm. by some of the audience reaction where maybe it does feel like not necessarily an agenda, but it's like okay, they took that in a way that wasn't what I intended. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. But I'm always listening out for things that seem forced, mm-hmm. really. Because I think it's in the delivery. You're right that everything has some kind of agenda behind it. But, like, I think that word has a has a bad connotation sure. to it, right? I don't mean it in a negative way. Yeah. Um, like, my agenda, my my intention of writing it from the top down. Right, yeah. That's or what from I mean. the bottom down. From the bottom up? Bottom up, yeah, sure. What's my cardinal direction here? From the south-north. Yes. Um, Right, that could be viewed as an edge. I get that. Um, But I'm always looking for something that stands out as preachy. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I mean as an agenda, is like using the stage and my platform as a soapbox Mm -hmm. instead of a mirror would be a mistake. So would you say you had a specific takeaway from that ending when they're all speaking directly to the audience. I mean, is there is there something you were trying to communicate beyond just the moment and the emotions of it? Well, that, I mean, that's kind of hard to say because that ending has changed a lot in, okay. in the different incarnations of the scripts. And this is draft. We've had eight drafts so far. So it's changed a lot. And ultimately it came down to like how it's landed now. It's come down to... Um, structure really more than anything else but we had will's um monologue all in one piece just hearing from him and then as i started reading through that other dialogue that's all pulled right from the newspaper um i started seeing the parallels and the things that he was saying with the things that were actually happening and i wanted to make i don't know like this this jenga Instead of just these two separate columns Mm -hmm. and intermix the two. Well, then, I mean, it mirrors with the way the play opens, too, in a cool Mm -hmm. way. And yeah, yeah, I love that about it. And like, so the audience I saw it with, it seemed like pretty much everybody was crying at the end. Good. Good. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) you're happy with that reaction. That's what I mean. Not not that you're trying to make them cry in a mean way or even, but like, even just as as someone working with drama, to get a strong reaction from a crowd means something. It does. And I mean, obviously there's different sort of, there's a different element because it's a true story, Mm -hmm. but clearly it's landing. Yeah. Yes. The response has been overwhelming and surprising and humbling. And um, yeah, man, hearing audience reaction is, is really powerful to me because, because it's like, okay. Everything that I did, all the tears that I cried writing it, all of the dark times that I had writing it, everything that we've poured into this is worth it mm-hmm. because they are taking something from it. And I mean, to make people cry in general, I mean, nobody likes to, like, you know, everybody kind of pretends like they're not crying as they walk out. And, <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of tissues. And I mean, like to you, I mean, listening to the audience throughout it, are they having the general reaction then that you hope they would? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
like I said, like the audiences are different. Mm-hmm. I love a vocal audience. I love an audience. So here's my thing. So did you see this whole controversy about Rihanna with her cell phone at this play? You know, I'm not hip enough to really know much about it. I guess I, <laughs> I kind of am vaguely aware. I maybe saw a tweet. Okay, great. So that's all you need to know. Okay. It was so, it just blew up beyond all recognition. So Rihanna was in the front row of this play by, um, it's called Slave Play and it just opened on Broadway. And um, it's Jeremy's play. And what is Jeremy's last name? I can't think of it. I know somebody will be out there yelling it at me. Well, anyway, um, so she's actually texting the playwright. And she was just like, oh, my God, this is fucking awesome. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Whatever. And it blew into this huge thing about people having cell phones in plays. And then I got into it on Facebook with somebody who was like, "Um, cell phones in plays are the next wave of the future. And I was like, you are writing shit that you don't even want people to hear if you believe that. Right. You know. I saw there was phone police at the Blue Barn. Yes. I'm just making sure no one has their phone out. Yes, because in a play like this, oh my God, like somebody's phone was buzzing right in front of me almost at the end of the play and I just wanted to flick the back of their little head because it just incenses me because what seems minimal to one person can really take somebody else out of the show right like the candy wrapper behind me see you don't know who it is so you can complain all you want it's not not direct (laughs) because I'm gonna start saying this too in my curtain speeches turn off your phones if you have candy open that shit now because I don't want to hear it at an, you don't know what's coming next. You don't know the line somebody's going to miss. And in theater, it's so true. If you, you, you could miss one line and then that whole scene was for nothing. Right. And I mean, plays are quiet. I mean, yeah. you need to listen. There's not like a movie that's really loud or there's like an action scene or whatever. I don't understand why people think, why do you need a fucking peppermint right now? <laughs> well, you aren't you talking to anybody. Yeah. How do you not know that that peppermint rapper is just... I saw that movie Ad Astra a week or two ago, and this kid next to me was chewing on ice the whole movie. And I'm just like, how do you not know that that's annoying? Do you I not would hear yourself? Snap. <laughs> that is like, give me a refund. Like, I can't do it. This is why I stopped going to the movies. Yeah. Like, I, I should. I, I love, you know what? We have a giant ass TV. I love watching some shit at my house <laughs> with nobody else around. If you, in my book, there's a whole, there's a whole, uh, the guy, Shep, he works at the movie theater and he's been at the movie theater for 20 years. And there's a whole uh, chapter in there about people at the movies and how like everything's driving you fucking nuts. Right. Yeah. I don't know how we got on that, but like the noise, oh, plays being quiet. I mean, yes. End of scene. End of scene. <laughs> well, okay. So, uh, where should people go to either follow you or to buy tickets or anything you want to plug here? Well, um, follow me. Don't follow me on Twitter because I'm just listen. If you don't like Bernie, don't follow me on Twitter because I'm just gonna piss you off. Um, so about the show, you should go to the bluebarn.org. And we are running Thursday through Sundays through October 20th. We may open up to some Wednesday night performances um, if we keep selling fast. And um, you can follow me at, well, I don't know, because my website's almost done. <laughs> That'll be boatfieldberryfisher.com. And I have a lot going on there. But also my Facebook's a great plate page. Also, my Facebook is a great place to follow me. 
because I'm just trying to keep it cool and positive right now. How's, so. how's that going? <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But it's mostly public, so you can see all the cool stuff we're doing. But I also plug what other people are doing a lot, too. So mm-hmm. that's great. And you can come and see my kids on my Instagram page. Beautiful Bo 84 <laughs> And they're really cute. Well. Um, but I encourage everybody to learn more about Will Brown. And you can do that. I mean, I would just start with a, with a simple Google search. And I would also encourage people to open themselves up to learning more about our history in general, you know, I think we, we, there's a lot of separation between American history and African American history and black history is American history. And there's a lot of it that I uncovered in this process and I'm pretty well versed in it. So there's so much to learn all of the time. And I just think that even if you're a bad student and you don't want to pay to go to school, knowledge is still your friend. I think that's a great note to end on. Thank you for uh, getting hydrated and surviving to come be, come do the show today. I'm so proud of me. <laughs> Thank you. Riverside Chance is hosted by me, Tom Nobluck. I produce the show along with Ben Matukowicz through our company, Exarbon Creative. We're housed at Studio 62 in the heart of Benson, Nebraska, home of BFF. To support our show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Creative. Also, No big announcement yet, but if you like this show, you like what's been going on with it, it wouldn't hurt to tell your public radio station that you would like to hear it on that station. There may be some radio edits incoming that will be available to more than one station. So help get the word out on this show. Thank you to those of you who've reviewed it, helped get the word out to those who already listen. I absolutely appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another great conversation with another fascinating person right from the heartland.